Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said yes. I'm Molly, co-host of the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled, culty, and we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. We are back with Gary Hudson and David Johnson. This feels like the Green Team reunited because recently we've done a couple episodes for David's show, The Skeptics and Seekers Podcast. Uh, those are available on David's site, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But this is something that we wanted to talk about because it kind of came off the back of a discussion that we had going through David's show. So welcome, Gary and David, to Mindshift Podcast. Thank, Thank you. Yeah, great to see you guys again. You. I've gotten some real positive feedback from uh, the shows. I've had people calling for Gary. Uh, it's it's a little bit humbling. I mean, Clint, you and I, we we were rock stars, and then we Gary thought comes we were. on, and he's he's got all the attention. It's it's all about Gary at this point. It's the, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I am glad though that I've well actually connected. I'll take the credit for that because I connected Gary to you, David. So I have a little part to play in that because Gary was on my show a few months ago. We were talking about his book Surrender to Reason and find out he's an ex-IFB pastor. And so I thought, oh, he'd be a perfect one to do your Skeptics and Seekers Sunday sermon. So how long did we spend? About four hours going through a John MacArthur sermon? Oh, yeah. No, it was it was. Uh -oh, so, he's holding up a Bible so now. <laughs> I know we're in trouble. <laughs> it looks, looks like would a lot you, of would you remind passages. Me, would you remind me what IFB stands for? That's the, in, the independent fundamentalist Baptist or independent fundamental oh, Baptist. Yeah. Independent oh, yeah, fundamental uh, evangelical dispensational premillennial King James only Baptist. Yeah, it's all it's yeah. all the way. It's yeah. all the hits all the hot buttons. But so, I yeah, we had King James only movement in uh, my group. I, I I actually turned away from King James onlyism in 1988 and exposed it and wound up debating the Peter Ruckman of Pensacola, who was actually the guy who started King James Onlyism. Right. So you're a flaming liberal. 
Gary, are we allowed to have you on the show? Twice, twice apostate, apostate for leaving the King James, apostate for leaving the Christian faith. All right. In this case, it's two strikes and you're out. So <laughs> you're in good company, though, because both David and I are ex-pastors as well. So we've got a really good, well, we've got a question that a listener asked. So without further ado, let's get into the question. The question that a friend of mine, Ray, asked me was, why does Jesus always seem to get a free pass when Christians are deconstructing? And there's a lot in there. Basically, I think what he's asking is, Jesus is seen as sort of this wise guru, this sort of teacher, gentle shepherd, and all the rest of it. His words are like, well, they've been twisted and manipulated by people like Paul. Paul gets a lot of the blame, but Jesus always seems to come off on the good side of the whole question. So we got to get into that. Then the corollary to that was, could Jesus have been a cult leader? Because the question inevitably turns into that one. If he wasn't such a great teacher, could he have been a type of cult leader, which is another corollary to the first question? So we're just going to throw that out there. Yeah, how do you how do you want to eat this elephant? Um, okay, so there's there's a first question that we have to address right off the bat, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the first objection that people have is now, hang on a minute. The second you talk about the quote teachings of Jesus, you have to look at the issue of the reliability of the Gospels. Did Jesus even exist? The question is, what do we do with that elephant in the room? That's that's the big one right off the bat. Because if Jesus didn't even exist, why does any of this question even matter to anyone? So if you'll allow me to just take a, a second to answer that, I kind of I've done a write up. You can find it on skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. It'll be there somewhere. <laughs> I don't know exactly where you I'm going to put it there, but yeah, it'll, it'll, it, it'll be easy enough to find. But in the conclusion uh, of that, I talk about this a little bit. Uh, I don't think that, you know, well, history and literature have two problems, both, both the same problem. So it's, this is the problem whether the person was real or whether the person was not real. We don't have all of the information. You know, if just literature, we just we have what the author said in whatever books they wrote. But right. that's never the full character, right? So, uh, you know, people love Harry Potter, but they don't know anything about the actual life of Harry Potter. Does he does he like puppies? Does he help poor people? You don't know. All of that is kind of in your head canon. And that's the Harry Potter for you. It, it doesn't matter if it's the real Harry Potter. It's the one that you've got in your head. Same mm -hmm. with Jesus and other people of history. So if Jesus is a person of history, that's great. But we only have so, so little about what he even supposedly said and did. And so if you take all of that and just assume it's reliable, there are so many gaps that we have to fill in with headcanon. And so uh, the Jesus that people end up believing in or, you know, falling in love with or being infatuated with or, or being a fan of, that is the Jesus of our imagination. It's not the Jesus of history because we mm. filled in that Jesus with a lot of headcanon that is not there on the page. And that's kind of why everyone has a slightly different Jesus from everyone else, because you start with the writings on the page. And then you start filling it in with your headcanon. Uh, and then you kind of change the writings on the page to fit in with the Jesus that you imagine. And so I think ultimately when we talk about this question, we're talking about the Jesus that people imagine exists mm. and not just the Jesus that we can find on the page. Right. What are your thoughts then, Gary? Yeah, Jesus historically has to be interpreted. 
and of course it's interpreted interpreted denominationally. Everyone, every different denomination of Christianity has a, a his, has a view of Jesus and his teachings, different views. For example, uh, I'm not a mythicist. I believe that Jesus did exist. I've read Richard Currier. I've read uh, Bart Ehrman on this as well. You know, and I really take Ehrman's position that uh, the Jesus that most people have in their idea of Jesus, uh, denominationally or what they have gathered themselves, is really an enhanced view that uh, the New Testament itself, uh, the Gospels being later writings than the writings of Paul, pretty much play out the fact that as you get to the later Gospels, like you start with Mark, which is the earliest, and you go all the way up to John, this character of Jesus, the, the narrative is so enhanced as it grew. It grew and grew. So I believe that Jesus was a historical figure, but uh, the Jesus who performed uh, these miracles and actually rose from the dead, I don't think that uh, there's there's any history to that, of course. But as far as as far as it was there a Jesus, was he a teacher? Was he a, a cult leader? He may or may not have been a cult leader. It might have been that a cult was formed around him after he died. Of course, that's exactly what happened with Buddha. There was a cult formed. Mm -hmm. Many cults have been formed around him. He was not really a cult leader. He was just a teacher. So I don't know if we can really blame Jesus for the cult. But I know that uh, I, I do think that he did exist historically. Uh, there's just too much, like when Paul writes in Galatians to uh, in Galatians chapter one, and mentions uh, the brother of Jesus, James, and mentions other people that he met with in, in Jerusalem. I mean, that's that's pretty early. I mean, that's mm -hmm. like fifty one, fifty two, somewhere around there, A.D. I don't know how that could have been widely accepted if Jesus had not even existed or had no brothers. So, I, right. So we don't. That he did exist, yes. Right. So we don't have to rely just on the Gospels, as it were, for a historical record. Yeah, that's a really good point. I kind of chart maybe between the above because I studied narratology for my PhD, which is the how narratives work, basically. And what I came to realize is that both God and Jesus are characters in the Bible. They're, in the, they're characters in the narrative. And that thought just blew my mind because I always, as a Christian, I worshiped what I thought was the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible. When I came to see and understand that Jesus and God were characters, just like Matthew or John or any other characters we encountered, Paul, in these narrative stories, that kind of changed my worldview. And what I think about it is it doesn't really matter whether Jesus existed historically or not. We have somebody's words in a book, and Christians for millennia have been allegedly following these words and teachings, trying to pattern their lives after it. So that's the record we have, and that's the legacy that we've inherited in the church and now all of us as ex-evangelicals. So I don't know what people make of that, but we have to sort of address that issue right, right off the bat, I think. I totally agree with that. I mean, my my Red Letters project, uh, and just so you know, uh, Gary, I am a reluctant mythicist. So... I, I used to believe that Jesus was a guy and that he exists, but um, you know, after studying uh, legend and myth uh, and just kind of looking at the the story of Jesus, I came to conclude he he looks more like myth than man. But it doesn't it doesn't actually matter to me uh, if there was a Jesus of history. He's lost to history. We we mm -hmm. we actually can't find that Jesus of history. 
So the only Jesus we have is the Jesus of the New Testament. And, you know, you mentioned Paul. Well, I think that Paul was a fabulous and a liar. Once again, having studied Paul for quite a bit. So, you know, if he says, yeah, I met with a brother of Jesus, I don't, I don't think there's any way that anyone could have verified that statement to be true. And, you know, James, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, there could have been plenty of people saying, oh, yeah, I was Jesus' brother. I was his first cousin. Uh, at that point, Jesus was the icon of a movement and people were laying money, uh, you know, by our way of figuring money by the hundreds of thousands at their feet. Of course, it makes sense that some relatives of Jesus would pop up from the woodworks. We have people today claiming to have been Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. that's that's not really, you know, something that I find uh, evidential that, you know, Paul mentions a brother of Jesus. The largest Christian denomination in the world, the Catholic Church, would say, no, Jesus didn't have any brothers. Um, mm. And so this, you know, that shouldn't be read like that. One of the rare few times I'm going to side with the Catholics. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Paul, Paul, was Paul actually a liar? Or did he actually believe the things that he said were true? Mm, well, that, I mean, question. that's possible. I, I mean, I think he, I do think there were some occasions where he's just flat out lying. Because Christians flat out lie today about, you know, many, you know, fantastical things that supposedly have happened in their lives. I don't see any reason to read Paul any different from that. But he also could have been delusional. Uh, because I think there are a lot of people who aren't lying about their experiences, but are maybe delusional or have other, you know, things going on uh, mentally. So I'm not I'm not saying that to make fun of anyone or make light. But when you read some of Paul's writings and you just take him as at face value as much as possible, he seems to have been a troubled soul uh, is, mm. you know, what we would call him in the South. And what we what I don't read from Paul is any reason to believe that he has some divine uh, guidance into the man Jesus or his teachings. What we have to remember is that Paul never met Jesus. He, he never met Jesus. And everyone from the early church and, you know, from, you know, the spreading of the gospel to the places, the people that ended up being Jesus followers never met Jesus. So the only people who actually met Jesus and who carried on into, you know, this kind of early church were the 12 apostles. Those are the, those are the people whose story carries on. Those are the people who told the stories, but they weren't telling the stories to people who met Jesus and even largely to people who would have been in a, a position to verify anything they said, just like today. Well, I think that uh, we can agree that the Jesus... That presented the New Testament never existed. That, that, that is the Jesus that I don't think ever really existed. You know, there might be some sayings of his that were recorded and heard that were put down, but um, I think we can agree that that Jesus never existed. Okay, I agree. yeah, that, you know, yeah. and there might have been a guy. There might have been a guy who said some things that kind of stood uh, in for this. But if 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 you want to just take a look at. Um, you know, how, how mythology works. I mean, King Arthur is one of my favorite examples. Yes. Uh, we've got so much literature on King Arthur. It's hard to believe that a King Arthur would never have existed. That's exactly, King Arthur. Yeah. King Arthur never existed. Okay. But there may have been a guy somewhere in history. There may have been several guys somewhere in history that these stories were based on. But we, it's, they're impossible to find. And as far as we know, with our best lights, 
that guy never existed. There was never a Lud that, you know, there are all, all kinds of legends that never existed. But that's okay because we do have their stories. And my focus on Jesus is whether you think he existed or didn't, it doesn't matter. What we are doing with the study of Jesus is we're studying the teachings ascribed to him right. to see if they hold up. Uh, because as, as Clint said so eloquently, whether there was Jesus or not, there are definitely teachings. And there's, yeah. there's definitely this image of Jesus that's painted in the New Testament. And uh, we, we are free to talk about that. Uh, and, I, and I think we should. And people are free to fall in love with that character or not. But I just wanted to, you know, deal a little bit with why it doesn't make sense to, mm -hmm. to be a fan of that character. Yeah. Um, well, and that's a you good know, segue into the question. I know we could get we could get off into the weeds for sure on this question, mysticism and all the rest of it. I think a lot. I think the subtext behind the question, "Why does Jesus get a free pass when people are deconstructing?" is that the blame falls on Paul because there's a famous scene. I'm sure you guys have seen the Last Temptation of Christ, the movie. It's a fascinating film as a case study. There's a scene in which, well, in the in the the plot of the movie, Jesus rejects being the messiah basically and he goes off and gets married and has a family and all this and it all turns out to be a dream sequence which i'm sure i've just ruined it for everybody who hasn't seen it yet but it's, anyway, a, it's an old movie <laughs> at, yeah at some point though jesus is walking with his family and he hears this man preaching and it's paul it's the apostle paul and he's saying all this stuff that jesus did and jesus comes up to him after the sermon and says wait a minute what are you you're making all this stuff up about me i didn't do any of those things none of that's true and paul says look whether or not you did it, it doesn't matter. You know, I've got people believing it, and that's really all that matters. And they have this kind of angry confrontation. I think that's kind of the subtext to this question. The blame falls on Paul, whereas Jesus is getting screwed over. He's the real guy. He's the wise guru. He's the teacher that we should be emulating, you know, and, and Paul's ruined the church. So there's a subtext to this question, I think. And I heard a voice say, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? Why are you against me? Who are you? I said. And the voice said, Jesus. And he made me see. I was led helpless like a child into a city that I was sent to scourge. And God sent me Ananias instead. And he put his hands on me. And I opened my eyes. And I was baptized and became Paul. And now I bring the good news to you. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the son of Mary. He was the son of God. His mother was a virgin. And the angel Gabriel came down and put God's seed in her womb. That's how he was born. And he was punished for our sins. Our sins. Then he was tortured and crucified. But three days later, he rose up from the dead and went up to heaven. Death was conquered. Amen. Do you understand what that means? He conquered death. All of our sins were forgiven. And now the world of God is open to every one of us, to everybody. Did you ever see this Jesus of Nazareth after he came back from the dead? I mean with your own eyes. No, but I saw a light that blinded me. And I heard his voice. 
You're a liar. His disciples saw him. They were hiding in an attic with the doors locked. And he appeared to them. Liar. He's a liar. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I want to talk to you. I was never crucified. I never came back from the dead. I'm a man like everybody else. Quiet. Why are you telling these lies? What are you talking about? I'm the son of Mary and Joseph. I'm the one who preached in Galilee. I had followers. We marched on Jerusalem. Pilate condemned me and God saved me. No, he didn't. Who are you talking about? Don't try and tell me what happened to me because I know. I live like a man now. I work, eat, have children. I enjoy my life. For the first time, I'm enjoying it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So don't go around telling lies about me. Or I'll tell everybody the truth. Just a minute. What's the matter with you? Look around you. Look at all these people. Look at their faces. Do you see how unhappy they are? Do you see how much they're suffering? Their only hope is the resurrected Jesus. I don't care whether you're Jesus or not. The resurrected Jesus will save the world, and that's what matters. Those are lies. You can't save the world by lying. I created the truth out of what people needed and what they believed. If I have to crucify you to save the world, then I'll crucify you. And if I have to resurrect you, then I'll do that too, whether you like it or not. I won't let you. I'll tell everyone the truth. <laughs> Go ahead. Go on. Tell them now. Who's going to believe you? You started all this. Now you can't stop it. All those people who believe me will grab you and kill you. No, that wouldn't happen. How do you know? You see, you don't know how much people need God. You don't know how happy he can make them. He can make them happy to do anything. Make them happy to die. And they'll die. All for the sake of Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God. The Messiah. Not you. Not for your sake. You know, I'm glad I met you. Because now I can forget all about you. My Jesus is much more important and much more powerful. Thank you. It's a good thing I met you. Okay. Uh, look, I can... I, I asked for five to seven minutes. I, I think I can do this in about 30 seconds and, and just boil a lot of things down here. Uh, read the write-up, folks, Skeptics Seekers, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. It'll be there somewhere. I, I would say that the best, the best response to this question comes from Christians <laughs> and, and maybe mm. even uh, Calvinists, maybe even the more fundamentalist uh, Christians. And so, Gary, I expect that you will have said something much like this uh, in, your, in your time as a preacher, and that's simply this. Jesus does not give you the option to think of him as a good teacher or a good man or a wise guru. That's not an option. Jesus says he's God. He says that the only way to the Father is through him. He says to love him is to obey him. If you, if you love him, you will keep all of his commandments. This is what Jesus says. This is what is written down as things that Jesus says. So the character that we're talking about, this is him. He does not leave you with the option of just patting him on the head and thinking, ah, oh, what a good, wise man. Uh, he has a lot of nice things to say, and I think I'll pick and choose from them. No, he's either God or he's not. 
he is either someone that you hail as king or you don't. If you don't hail him as king, then he was mad because he went around uh, implying that he was God and king. Right. The That's Messiah. The C- yeah. C.S. Lewis, the right? trilemma, wasn't he? Liar, Lord, or lunatic. You can only, he has to be one of those three, but he can't be all three of them. Right. And I don't think that I, you know, I take issue with the trilemma. There are more options than that, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what option you take. If you don't take the option of Lord, then it doesn't matter. If he's not your Lord, you should not be a fan of Jesus. You should think of him as either a, a crazy person, a troubled person or a liar because he said he was God and he said you have to obey him. And if you were not selling all your possessions and giving the money to the poor and things like that, you're not obeying him. Stop it. Stop it. He mm. wasn't a good man or a good teacher because you don't think of him as Lord. Furthermore, he doesn't care what you think about him. If you're not following him, if you're not his follower, his disciple, you have no part in him. Hmm. So you have a problem with unrequited love. He doesn't give a damn <laughs> whether you like him or not. So <laughs> it, just does, it doesn't matter. It, he doesn't leave you that option. Uh, and so I would, I would really dig into, you know, a little bit deeper into any atheist saying, yeah, well, I, I kind of like Jesus. I like, you know, what he taught or I like the way he talked or, you know, and I cover all of that. I'm not going to go over that now. But I, I would just ask why. Uh, and ultimately, you know, dealing with that C.S. Lewis tribe lemma, do you accept him as Lord? No? Then I don't think you actually like him. Hmm. You, yeah, when you really drill down, what's your thoughts on it then, Gary? I think you have to look at everything Jesus said. If people who cherry-picked this issue with the sayings of Jesus and only want to major on the Beatitudes or the Golden Rule or mm-hmm. on the Mount, okay, that's all they want to talk about. Uh, that's the teachings of Jesus. The, I've heard claims that Jesus was a socialist. No, Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jimmy, Jesus wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. Jesus believed that God's form of government was a monarch. Okay, it was a it was a king. It was a hierarchy yeah. with him on top as the king. All right, there was that was that's not a democracy. A and theocracy. Them either. It's neither socialism nor democracy. So forget that whole idea. But the thing that people do is that they don't, they don't, they really haven't thought about these other things Jesus said, like sell all that you have and give to the poor and, you, and you'll have riches in heaven. Or he that follows me and does not hate his father and his mother and his brothers and his sisters and his own life also, uh, he cannot be my disciple. And the word there in Greek is hate. So uh, you can't get around that one. Was some very strong demands that he made with no proof, no proof at all. Well, they said, well, the proof was the miracles. Well, then again, that's part of the narrative. We weren't there. I haven't seen a miracle, okay, myself. So I'm not really forced to believe this. But I can't see uh, even how a miracle would verify that he was God, because there was there's magicians and people that can do all kinds of things. But not even that would say that he is God. So. It was really it was the it was the enhancement of the narrative that made him God. You know, it was what people said about him in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John one one. I mean, there you go. He's God. All right. So a non falsifiable front to this is, well, he's God. So shut up. I mean, that's really the way. I mean, this it's the same way when somebody says the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Now, that doesn't really settle it. 
It doesn't really settle it at all. It settles it in their mind. But when you try to talk to somebody who is, who's gotten into that non-falsifiable argument, then you can't, there's, there's no point. And even, uh, there's no way to test it. There's no way to test whether it's true or false. You mentioned uh, cherry picking, uh, Gary, and you mentioned uh, the Beatitudes in particular. And, you know, you're, you're looking at 12 verses yep. in, in the Bible, essentially. And people focus on things like, blessed are the peacemaker. And they're like, yes, yes, this is yeah, why. I love can that. I read you the, can I read you the last uh, Beatitudes here? It's, uh, you know, 10 through 12. It's real, uh, real quick. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First of all, there's no being blessed when you're persecuted. That's not a good state. You should not enjoy it. But he doubles down. Blessed are you when people insult you. What? That's crazy. Uh, blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he says. What? What, why are you rejoicing and being glad when you are suffering? This is a kind of a celebration of suffering uh, mentality. Uh, because great is your reward in heaven, he says. Um, or they also persecuted the prophets. You know what they did to the prophets? They killed them. Uh, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, if you're, if you're suffering for me unfairly, if people are persecuting you, no, don't get out of that state. Don't pray for that state to end. Rejoice, he says, and be glad in that state. Uh, I know that, uh, you, you know, one of the questions, sub-questions was, was Jesus a cult leader? I think this is one of the first indications that his teachings were not only not good, but they were really dark uh, mm -hmm. in places. And this is one of them. Yeah, yeah. well, I think that, yeah, the, the Sermon on the Mount is very much cherry-picked, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're proof texting. But what about let's let's look at it from a biblical theology point of view. Okay, we don't want to proof text. One of my favorite things to do. I love biblical theology when I was an evangelical. Study the entire book in its literary context and see what it's trying to do from a narratological point of view. So, for example, the book of John, you could say, all right, the book starts out with the boldface claim: "In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God." And Jesus is the Logos, the Word. So he's John lays it out. He is God. As David was saying, it's it's a stark you know, statement right in your face. As the book progresses, you see two sort of narrative sort of things that go on. One is that a group of people, their unbelief in Jesus grows and grows and grows to the point where they end up crucifying him, whereas the others, their belief in him grows, right? And so you have these disciples that stay with him throughout the hard teachings and all the kind of crazy statements that he made, like eat my flesh and drink my blood. They stay. And they're the ones who are still there after, you know, the narrative records him arising from the dead and all the rest of it. And my take on that as an evangelical was that's the choice that it faces that faces the reader. You have a choice to either reject Jesus or believe in Jesus based on the things he said, the things he did. What's it going to be for you? That was how I would end the sermon. You know, so what about that from a biblical theology point of view, looking at an entire book like John? Gary, I've been I've been going first every time. Take Take it away. <laughs> Dive in there, Gary. Oh, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, that's that's uh, really excellent. You know, it's just that uh, the narratives are enhanced. I mean, uh, it's mainly uh, theology that made Jesus this G this Jesus of the Bible the one that people believe in, and it's theology about that was written about him long after he left the earth. Of course, he never himself wrote anything. That's true. Uh, if he existed or not. 
So um, it, it's just a matter of, of understanding that there's more to the teachings of Jesus, I think. I think people need to understand there's more to the teachings of Jesus than just love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it, that you don't want to follow. And there's a but lot you can't follow. You can't. There's, I mean, nobody. Some things are not. Yeah, you can't take them literally. You can't gouge your eye out, cut no. your hand off. That's what Jesus literally said. This is David Madison's project, basically. He wrote that book, 10 Tough Things Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And that's basically his argument. He says, if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, okay, fine. Then here's 10 things that you must do. Cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. And he goes through it and he's like, it's it, the logic is, is completely madness if you want to claim to be a follower of Jesus. You can't do it. When we come back in the second half of this chat with Gary and David, we're going to get even more into the question, was Jesus a good teacher, a bad teacher? Was he some form of a cult leader? And I don't know what you make of any one of those three questions. Where are you in your journey of faith, your deconstruction journey? If you're a Christian, maybe this podcast is offensive to you. Maybe this is making you angry. If that's the way you feel, I'd love to hear from you. You can always send me a DM over at X, which is formerly Twitter, at MindShift2018. If you jump on the public MindShift podcast Facebook page, you can email me directly from the page. There's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your comments, and your questions. Now, what's coming up on the next few episodes here on the show? We've got a good episode with Jared Stacy coming up. I've been talking about this for a while. He's an American living up in Aberdeen, Scotland. He's doing a doctorate up there, doing a lot of work on evangelicals in America and conspiracy theories. And of course, I've talked a lot about this. So we had a lot in common talking about the evangelicals that support Trump getting into QAnon and all these other things that kind of spin out from there. So that's coming up. And then, of course, you heard there at the top of the show, we have Rachel and Molly from the Cheers to Leaving podcast. We're doing a crossover episode. In fact, we just had this conversation the other week. What a great chat we had. Went on for nearly two hours. The first half is going to appear on their show, and then the second half is going to appear on mine. It was really kind of a seamless conversation. None of us wanted it to end. And in fact, it looks as if we're working on this, but Rachel and Molly are probably going to be our guests as we look to resume our Mindship podcast Zoom calls, we usually do these once a month, about the last Sunday of the month or so. These are available for Patreon supporters of the show. This is a great way to support the show on Patreon. You get access not only to our closed Mindship podcast Facebook group, you get access to these calls as well as exclusive patrons-only content that comes out in between every normal episode. And in fact, I've just posted up the other week. On Patreon, I shared Kathy Bosman's story. I should say the second half of it. I shared the first half. It's all about coming out of harsh religion into self-love. And she actually developed an eating disorder based on the really strict fundamentalist teachings that she experienced growing up in South Africa. Absolutely unbelievable story. And then the second half is how she not only came out of that, she got help, she got counseling, she got therapy, she got into spirituality and found a way to love herself really for the first time in her life. So Part one and part two are available only on Patreon. And in fact, speaking of patrons, thank you to Robbie and Barbara, the latest patron supporters of the show. Uh, Robbie's just joined our Closed Mindship podcast Facebook group, so it's good to get to know him in there. And it's ironic that that is our new sort of quote unquote church community. It's a good way to find support, help, and healing if you're coming out of harsh religion like Kathy Bosman did. And in fact, speaking of harsh religion, this is something I've been working really hard on. I'm getting my First book ready. It's been the editing stage right now. It's called Baptism Third Time's a Charm. 
my story of deconversion from Christianity, hoping to get it out on Amazon sometime end of September or in October at some point, once all the edits are done and it's ready to go. I'm telling my story of how I was baptized as a kid, not once, not twice, but actually three times, trying to get it right, trying to do all the right things in all the right ways for all the right reasons. I think a lot of people are going to resonate with my story growing up in the Gothard cult and all the rest of it. So look for that book coming out. At some point when it's ready to come out, I'm going to do a reading of chapter one so you can kind of get a feel for what it's about. So hopefully that'll come out soon within a month or two. All right, let's head on back into the second half of our conversation with Gary Hudson and David Johnson as we continue to ponder these questions. Was Jesus a good teacher, a bad teacher, or was he some form of a cult leader? So I, I wanted to pick up on uh, the point that you made uh, earlier, Clint, uh, and I wanted to get lost. In, it's one of the reasons why I think we get along so well, uh, because uh, we both look at the literature about Jesus as literature and, you know, try to take it as a whole, try to understand what the writer uh, was was trying to say. I think that when you follow Jesus' ministry as a whole, it touches on the question of, was he a cult leader? Yes. Um, you know, and I and I think from my from my perspective, I, I hate to just throw this out here without, you know, supporting it with uh, three hours worth of stuff. Can't do that. Um, but I think he was. And I think that you can pick that up by some of the things he taught. All right. So you mentioned John six. This is, in fact, the passage that uh, we we dealt with with John with John MacArthur's uh, yes. uh, sermon. And Who, so. You know, he he tells these people, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me and my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And this is after the people had questioned him and said, I, I don't know what you mean, Jesus. Now, just put that in a modern context. If you're a preacher today and let's say you're teaching a Bible study where there are a lot of unbelievers and you get to a place where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, wait a minute, we, we have to be cannibals. How would you deal with that? You would very gently, very lovingly, and very carefully explain what you think Jesus meant, right? You, you would try to explain it in a way that they could understand and digest. You right. wouldn't just leave them thinking that Jesus was talking about cannibalism, but Jesus didn't do any of that. He knew what they were thinking. He knew how confusing what he was saying was. And he just doubled down on it and left them with that confusion so that they had no choice. I contend they had no choice but to leave him. Because if you're if a preacher is saying that to you and you're saying, wait a minute, I that sounds like you're asking me to eat eat a human, and and the preacher doesn't explain it, you should walk out of that church. And that's what the people did to Jesus. So the kind of people that he wanted, remember, he turns in this kind of dramatic scene at the end, he turns to his disciples, to the 12 apostles, and he says, will you also leave? And they're like, no, we're going to stick with you. But you've got to understand that's the type of person that Jesus wanted, the kind of person who would hear something crazy and just accept it, not question it, not get explanations, just accept it because he said it. And he said all kinds of things. Like, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, loving, loving him more than your family, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, we, we could get into that. But the people who stuck with Jesus, they were the people that said, OK, 
Yeah, and I'm they, buying they it. didn't ask the questions. Yeah. What were you going to say, Gary? Oh, he's, Jesus said, I hate your fan. Yeah, yeah I was just you being have nice. To hate. <laughs> hey, I should say it. He said. I know. But this yeah. is this is what's recorded there. We really don't know whether he said it or not. But it's the words we have. I think there is a basis for the the historicity of the character as far as someone who was blazing a tale with portrayal with his with his teachings and so forth. But it was a very enhanced narrative and it was used that way by the Greek part of the church and the early church and then of course the Jewish church and there was a battle going on there over uh, Sabbath keeping and so forth. So this everything is evolved in Christianity, the denominations, the beliefs, and so forth. But if you get right back to uh, uh, the, the when we say when we say Jesus said, for example, we said he, he claimed this or he demanded that, we're only quoting what people say he said, and uh, uh, we really don't know if he said it. But you're if you're dealing with people, and I deal with these people all the time, who actually believe that that is Jesus saying that. Mm -hmm. If you believe that that is Jesus saying that, and that he was God, then you've got you've really got a problem with logic. Because like like David was saying, he was somebody that was looking for people to believe in what he said, unquestioned, just take it and go with it. And that's what people do. They they have just like, there's been, I've known people that just picked up a Gideon Bible in a hotel room one night. And read the Gideon Bible and all of a sudden decided to be a Christian, just started believing everything they read. Those are the kind of people that Jesus was looking for. And of course, Christians would praise those people as people of faith, people who have real faith. And faith, if you notice how faith has been so idealized, like if, 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 you, if you don't believe you're somehow not a moral person, if you're a non-believer, you know, that kind of thing. Faith is something that in our culture, and, and our beliefs has really, really been put on a pedestal. And, uh, and it's too bad because we know where the Enlightenment put faith. And uh, so that's about all I've got to add to that. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of other thoughts I had on this. I, I mentioned David Madison. We could talk about some other resources like David Fitzgerald. He's a mythicist. He's written some books talking about the historicity of Jesus. One of the things I was reminded of when David was talking about what did Jesus actually say? Was he a really good teacher? And I know this is kind of your Red Letters project. Dr. Hector Avalos wrote a book years ago called The Bad Jesus, and his argument essentially is that Jesus is not that original of a teacher. You can go back in history way before Jesus ever existed and find a lot of the statements that he made that are supposedly groundbreaking. Like you said, Gary, wow, these are absolutely original. No one ever said this kind of thing before Jesus. No, they actually did. They can be found in other religions, other uh, traditions, other cultures, and Hector Avalos does the he does the hard work of doing the research, and that book caused a lot of problems with the Christians because they were like, "This can't be right." You know, Jesus was totally an original thinker. He's he's an unbelievable guru, wise teacher. Not so much, according to Hector Avalos. So I uh, wanted to um, add to this idea that Jesus just wanted people to believe. So you you recall the scene when he appears to the. Uh, 10 and Thomas wasn't there and he comes back. Uh, uh, Thomas is there and Thomas uh, says, unless I, you know, see the yeah. wounds like the others did, because the others saw saw the wounds Jesus showed them. Uh, he said, I, I want to see what they saw uh, eventually. And um, so John uh, 21, 
uh, verse 29, just real uh, quick. Then Jesus told him, this is after he showed Thomas, and Thomas said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who mm -hmm. have not seen and, and yet believed. believed. Yes, right. I preached so that many the, times. <laughs> the people that Jesus wanted were not the people who believed based on good evidence. Because right. he knew that there wouldn't be any good evidence. The people that he wanted, and this is why John includes this in the story, because there's no evidence. If anyone's walking around at John's time thinking, well, I hear these stories, there's no evidence. What John puts in Jesus' mouth is, yeah, 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 forget the evidence. I want the kind of people who believe without seeing. And mm. that's that's your Jesus right there. And that's that's kind of the call of a cult leader believe because I said it and you believe on me as a divine being. Don't believe because you see the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah that's, that should be a red flag right there. Mike Lindell, who recently made the statement, just forget about the evidence. Mike Lindell. My pillow guy? <laughs> talking He's about trying to prove that the election was stolen, even yeah. still after all these years. Forget about the evidence. And he's, a, he's quite a man of faith, too. Where's a big cross? Oh, he's an evangelical. Oh, yeah, all the way. But this thing of, of just believe it because I say it, or the Bible says that I believe it, that settles. It's the same mentality. Don't question anything. Is that really the way we raise our children? Do we teach them when we're raising them to just believe any any claims, uh, super improbable claims that anybody will make right, without any evidence? Don't you want to see proof? Uh, I mean, there's there's just no way that this is practical living at all. And this is something yet that, like you said, is taught by the Jesus of the New Testament. Believe in me and don't question, don't doubt. Blessed are those who believe without any evidence. No, that's not that's that's not what we teach our children. Believe mm -hmm. without any evidence and you're blessed. No, that's I not know that you're. I know you're trying to keep it under a certain uh, time frame, and by my clock, if we do 15 more minutes, we'd probably be just in your time frame. And yes. I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about, which we haven't really covered, is just how reliable are the things that we have about Jesus. So if you're a fan of Jesus because of the things that you think he taught uh, and said, forget the fact that you're cherry-picking it. You probably haven't actually studied the things that he taught and said. Um, how much do you know? about what he taught and said. Uh, every, if, if you think about this, everything that we know about what Jesus taught and said is in the New Testament. And, and the direct things are in four of the books. And then everything else comes from Paul and others in the rest of the books as kind of a second hand, you know, from, from a person who never met Jesus. So how reliable are the stories? Mm -hmm. Do you want to, you want to spend a little bit of time, uh, on, on that well and that's that's basically david fitzgerald's argument is that aside from the gospels there is basically no extra biblical evidence even to prove that jesus a existed and b said the things that he said so you have a huge problem there the only one you have is josephus which has been i guess shown to be a forgery or an addition so that that evidence is not necessarily reliable either well, the the thing about Josephus, uh, you can you can think of his passage, even a long passage, as reliable. I don't I don't think you can, but you know there are like three passages, uh, three variations of that, and you can, you can choose the short passage or the long passage, whichever whichever one you like. Josephus never met Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, right? So he never claimed to have met Jesus. 
he never tells us the sources of, uh, you know, the information he got about Jesus. So he's getting information about Jesus secondhand from people who were presumably followers of Jesus and who could benefit from the Jesus story, namely the people who led the church and had hundreds of thousands of dollars laid at their feet. Those are the only people he could have actually gotten any information mm -hmm. uh, about Jesus. Otherwise, everything that Josephus says, the you can validate all of that in the New Testament and you can't validate it outside of it. So I don't see any reason to believe that Josephus got his information from any other source than we get our information from Jesus today, which is secondhand accounts from fans of Jesus. Right. That's again, there's no extra biblical evidence that Jesus even existed, let alone said the things that he said. So you, you, you're you left with just the four Gospels. That's it. That's a lot to put your faith in. Right. So these these uh, Gospels are read, uh, written decades later. Let's say that they were written by eyewitnesses. This is, I think, an, an absurd notion. <laughs> but but let's just let's just give that notion. These eyewitnesses didn't write anything down when they were actually with Jesus. So yeah. it, it would be it would be one thing if these gospels purported to be written by eyewitnesses at the time of the events. Right? We couldn't prove that, but it would at least make the claim stronger. Yeah, make it more plausible. But, right. But if you're talking about eyewitnesses that wrote long speeches from Jesus down decades after they were done, let me tell you, I couldn't tell you the speeches that I made in this podcast at this time 20 minutes and ago I, and i said them and i've got a write-up <laughs> with a lot of it in it if you ask me three four five decades later now that i'll be alive uh what i said in this podcast just this one thing there's no way i could recollect it but you're you're asking people to have this believing in them and have this superhuman memory of what jesus said and the biggest question you should be asking is if these were the words of life that were supposed to go down through time, why didn't they write this stuff down at the time? Yeah, they should have been following Jesus around with scrolls and, and you know, quill pens and all that. What do you right. think about Jesus, that, Gary? What, he he had a treasurer, but he didn't have a, he didn't have a, yeah, a, a scribe. A, a scribe. All right, there's two things, there's two objections that often raise. I'm not raising these objections now, <laughs> but there are, there's two things that people say. First thing is, they will take a theological argument. That, oh, well, they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, of yep. course, it was it was something that was superhuman because they were getting inspiration and instruction and revelation from God who spoke and wrote through them. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they will say it that way. But, of course, again, here's another non-falsifiable argument. Here's another. They just claim God wrote it. So. What I try to deal with in my book, for example, is, is inerrancy true? If it was an all inspired by God, then it would all be infallible. It would, would, there wouldn't be any mistakes if an infallible God inspired it all. But there's plenty. But anyway, uh, that's that's the only way I know to deal with that argument. It's just to show the errors in the Bible. Therefore, it's an impossibility of there being an inspiration involved. So that, that there's it's been proven there wasn't an inspiration. The other thing are the apocryphal writings. There's the Gospel of Thomas, for example. There's other books, early books, uh, the early church. That So I guess what we're saying is that the New Testament Gospels 
are really no more reliable than like the Gospel of Thomas or these other writings that were floating around purporting to have additional information about Jesus. Right. So there's right. apocryphal book. They never made it into the New Testament canon. Because I remember going back to my time as an evangelical, I would have said, well, Gary, that's because they weren't inspired and they didn't pass the proofs of canonicity and all the rest of it. So they're clearly spurious. We can't trust the Gospel of Thomas and the Shepherd of Hermas and some of these other books. So there's your answer, isn't it? From an evangelical point of view, they, they have no problem with that. Right. But that still requires magic. And and the problem yeah. with using that argument with a question in front of us, you know, why why do atheists seem to give Jesus a pass? Atheists don't believe that there was any divine inspiration guiding people to write about Jesus. And so for the atheist, you have to dis, you have to uh, understand the writings in purely human literary terms. These were people who wrote about Jesus decades later without divine inspiration because you're an atheist. If you believed in divine inspiration, you wouldn't be an atheist, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to wrestle with the question of, well, then why weren't these things written down more reliably at the time of it? And I think there's some some answers to that, but I'm I'm not going to get into it. But as, as an atheist, you're reading the New Testament, you're thinking, I kind of like this guy, but everything you're reading about this guy came from either someone who never met him Right. People who supposedly met him or and didn't talk, didn't write it down until 30 to 50 years afterward. That's that's what you're dealing with. And there's there's simply no basis of, you know, being a fan of Jesus on the basis of someone's memory of what some guy said 50 years ago. That's basically true of the, of the writings of Clement. I mean, mm -hmm. it's hearsay and. There's really no way to verify any of it. But, of course, we know that the church has been divided over what's canonicity and what isn't you know, for, for centuries. Uh, there were some reformers that, quite frankly, wanted to throw out books of the New Testament because they weren't Pauline. Like uh, the mm -hmm. James, you know, that Martin Luther said he was going to light his stove with, with James one day. Yeah, an epistle and, made of straw, he said. John Calvin said that second he had really strong doubts that Second Peter was, was authentic. So they question Hebrew, Hebrews, Revelation. Yeah, a lot uh, of books. It barely made the cut. Well, it, it, yeah. So uh, uh, to me, the, the way we're looking at we're, we're actually looking at the evidence of the New Testament as no weightier than the Apocrypha. Right. A, a, a secularist, a non-believer, would have to say that. They would. They have. I think. I think they have no choice but to say that. Uh, you know, the the Gospel of John. A lot of, you know, some of the things there are, are shown to be false. The ending of Mark, we know is false. You can even read it in your Bibles. You got a Zondervan uh, Bible, uh, NIV copy of Zondervan. You'll have footnotes saying, uh, essentially, yeah, this part wasn't there, but <laughs> but we include it anyway. So how do you explain the snake handlers, though, David? They are taking, right. <laughs> they're taking Mark literally, drinking right, poison and handling rattlesnakes and copperheads look leaving. i can't I, I can't help you so okay <laughs> okay i want to be a snake handler man that's that's my dream <laughs> yeah you know funnily enough snake handlers die a lot oh yeah they do that there's a that's kind of a dark uh dirty untold story about snake handlers they die <laughs> but is, they sure it, believe it's literally true in the gospel of mark they they get themselves appalling right but we know that we know that that stuff 
isn't the case. So look, if you want to take those stories and say, these are the stories about Jesus that I want to believe, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But you also don't have any right to say that, yeah, also the Gospel of Judas or Barnabas or the Apocalypse of Peter are not good uh, sources of stories of Jesus. And when you read some of those, and we only have fragments of of most of this stuff. But when you when you read those fragments from experts who've been able to piece a lot of it together, they tell a very different story about Jesus. Yeah. So really right. you're just picking and choosing the stories that you like right. about Jesus. And once again, that's part of that thing that I said at the beginning. You have a story you have a particular Jesus that you have created out of certain stories you like and out of headcanon that you use to fill it in. But don't be upset when other people have different stories of Jesus and different ways of filling in the gaps and different headcanons because there are other stories out there and your story isn't any more valid than theirs. Mm-hmm. Mm. So how do we summarize this whole thing? Because I'm, I'm reflecting back on the roughly hour we've spent. One thing you can say is that Okay, are the, the Gospels reliable? We've talked about that, because if you're looking at Jesus as a wise guru, as a teacher, you can say, okay, Paul ruined the church or whatever. We need to preserve the teachings of Jesus. Well, they're not necessarily reliable. He may not have even existed. And then the second point is that Jesus said a lot of really horrifying, disturbing things that were bad advice, bad teachings. So you have to look at the whole canon, as you were, of the all four Gospels. There's a lot of troubling things. And then the other thing I'm thinking, too— a lot of Christians don't actually obey Jesus. They don't actually, they can't, as David Madison argues, you can't follow his teachings in some ways. But you you ask a Christian, I remember years ago going, I was in uh, Seattle having lunch with a friend of mine that I went to high school with. And he said, you know, he's left the church. And he said, the reason is, is that every time I have a conversation with a Christian, he says, give me three examples of how you specifically follow three commands of Jesus to a Christian, and they can never do it. They can't do it because they don't really know what that means. So actually, they say it, but they don't really follow Jesus's commands and teachings. It's just a it's a it's a platitude. It sounds good, but it really, when you push them, they can't prove that they are actually followers of Jesus. So if I can if I can take uh, one minute, I would just I would just add to that as a kind of a closing statement for me. I get why you might like some of the things that you think Jesus said and taught. Sure. I get that, right? Uh it, it wasn't all poison, but it also wasn't all good. But I would I would ask you this. So you've got the, you know, the three or four things from Jesus that you that you think you like and, and that you follow. What about all of the difficult passages? How do you mm-hmm. deal with those? And the the project of Christians is to just kind of explain them away, just kind of wave them away or or have some kind of interpretation that makes it where they can live with it, but they don't have to think about it. And I would just, I would just ask you to consider this. How do you know your interpretation is correct? Mm. Right. The people that Jesus was talking to live in John six at the time he was talking to them, they had an interpretation. They clearly didn't understand him, or maybe they did, but Jesus never explains himself. He never explains what he meant, what he meant by that. To this day, the Catholic Church, the largest Christian denomination in the world, believes that he meant it literally. Mm-hmm. To to this day, right? That is that is a fundamental belief that they have, and pretty much every Protestant would disagree. How do you know they're wrong? Jesus never explained it. 
when he when he talked to the crowd and said, "Give all of your uh, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor," he didn't just say that to one person. He said it to the crowds. Read Luke. When he's when he says that, you have an explanation in your head to explain it away because it's uncomfortable. How do you know your explanation is right? Because he never actually explains it away himself. When he when his apostles are saying, "Man, we left everyone for you," and Jesus says, "That's great." Uh, you're going to get all that back. Do you have to actually leave your family? Do you have to abandon your family? He never explains that, but we have a headcanon to smooth it up. How do you know your interpretation is right? And so these are the kinds of things that I would that I would ask you if you were a skeptic or an atheist uh, or just a numbiest who who likes the idea of Jesus. You've got to deal with the things that he said that he never explained. And if you find yourself just kind of hand-waving all of that away and whitewashing it uh, and explaining it away, if you got to do a lot of that to like this guy, maybe you should reconsider whether you actually like this guy. Mm. All right, Gary, what's your final thoughts then as we wrap up? Unfortunately, we're, we're dealing with a lot of people, believers that is. We're trying to help people that they only look at results. They only look at results and emotion. Well, all I know is that once I started believing it and praying this prayer or whatever, God started answering my prayer. So-and-so got healed, or I got a new job, I started making more money, or ever since I've been tithing to this church that preaches these things, I've gotten a bigger bank account, I've been able to afford more things. People just, especially in this day, when uh, the church has just gotten completely addicted to materialism and the prosperity gospel and so forth. What they're really looking for are just results. You know, you can wrangle and you can argue all you want to about theology or did Jesus mean this or did he mean that? All I know is, is I believe in him and he hears me and answers my prayers. Mm, my personal Jesus. So it's really, it's it's hard to argue with people who really firmly believe in their results as, a, as, as validating their faith, what yeah. they are actually results of their faith. Yeah. It's hard it's, to do with that. Yeah, and it's very emotionally threatening to to try to push someone to the logical conclusions of their beliefs. At least the Catholics and the snake handlers are taking the text literally. That is, according to the Gospels, what Jesus actually said. You can handle snakes, you can drink poison, you, you my flesh and my blood. So the Catholics believe in transubstantiation, the wafer and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. At least they're being consistent in their hermeneutic. You got to give them that much. That's crazy. And don't, as and it don't is. forget about uh, the Christians throughout history who have actually sold all their possessions. Yeah. And uh, taken vows of poverty because yeah. they believe that that's what Jesus actually said. Well, guess what? He actually did. He did. <laughs> so being consistent. At least, right. at least we can hold our hand up because I never did that as an evangelical. I didn't sell everything I had. I went out to be a hermit in the in the forest. I'm not taking a power of our poverty. I'm poor because I, I can't make enough money. <laughs> right. Bad life decisions, David. Maybe yeah, you should I pray know. about it a bit more. <laughs> I very much would like to change my vow of poverty. If I ever made it, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you retract that vow. What do. They say, I get results. That's what they'll say. I get yeah, results. Bottom line. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing. Bottom line, I get results too. Uh, I get results by not praying. I get results. Yeah. Uh, I have a, I have a happier life in marriage than I have ever had when I was a Christian. Those are results. Uh, even wow. though my finances are up and down, I am happier with my state 
than I was when I was making lots of money as a Christian. Uh, I get results. So why are my results invalid for having no Jesus? Right. Mm. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, but there's people, plenty of people argue, I didn't have these results until I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I started believing these things. And he said, well, that's just fine. But you know what? I haven't prayed about a single decision I've made in the last 12 years. And I've made the greatest, most profitable decisions of my entire life in the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it ironic, too, that the last four or five years, the job that I had, I've earned teaching qualifications that are far more beneficial than my Ph.D. I spent mm-hmm. years and years going to seminary, Bible college. I did a Ph.D. That's worthless. It's not even worth the papers written on. The last four years of my life have been, like you guys said, more profitable for me financially, career-wise, decision-wise. Those are, and I haven't prayed about those. Those are things that came up, and I decided, yes, I'm going to do that, and it's paid off. You know, I didn't pray about it. I didn't read the Bible. I didn't talk to the pastor. I didn't pray to Jesus, you know. So at the end of the day, there's the results. The proof's in the pudding, isn't it? I was going to say, but before we go, if you want to hear more of Gary, David, and I breaking down a John MacArthur sermon. I think David alluded to this. We were on his Skeptics and Seekers Sunday sermon. We had a fantastic time talking about this sermon that John MacArthur did called Deconstructing Christians. You can find that where, David? How can people get a hold of you and the podcast? You can get a hold of me at Skeptics and Seekers at gmail.com. Uh, that will get me reliably, uh, and I answer all emails. Uh, you can listen to the show, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Log into your Discuss account and discuss away. And uh, before I took a break, there's the Red Letters Project at patreon.com slash red letters. I am looking for a way before I start back on that uh, to make it free for everybody and just make it where you can just leave uh, donations and tips if you want to. Because I want to, I want to make that content available to as many people as possible. Patreon has made some changes that are going to make that possible. So we're we're going to come back to that. And so instead of a dollar a week or whatever, you can you can just give me nothing, or you can give me a thousand dollars. I'm going to vote for a thousand. But uh, <laughs> you know, no, you took a vow of poverty, David. You can't have a thousand dollars. I so want to change that. I want to go <laughs> so, go back and change it. Backseats. So that's uh, that's what's going on on that front for those who follow me. I haven't forgotten it. I haven't forgotten you. Red letters is still a burning uh, thing in my bosom, along with uh, heartburn and GERD. Uh, but um, yeah, that'll be back and more accessible to everybody. So stay tuned. Okay, good. And then, Gary, how can people find you? And talk about your book as well, because we did your book uh, a couple of episodes ago on a podcast, and that was fascinating. I got a lot of really good comments. I don't know what you did, but how can people find you? You can email me. My main business is guitar repair, as you know. I'm at folkstoneguitars.com, also stainlessstealfrets.com. My uh, email address is gary at folkstoneguitars.com. Dot com And you can just send me an email if you're interested in my book uh, within the uh, continental of the United States. It's fifteen dollars uh, postage paid. And uh, I do have a PayPal account. And so if you want to pay that way, but just get in touch with me if you're interested in a copy. I am thinking about expanding the book sometime uh, within this year, the end of this about the end of this year. And uh, adding a couple of chapters and some amend- amending of what I've written. So uh, that may be coming out later, too. Okay, good. 
I would say we have, we got a lot of good feedback on that episode. And if you want to hear the chat we had, look at David's site, Skeptics and Seekers. So thank you, Gary and David. I'm sure this will not be the last time we have a chat. If nothing else, we're going to get together on David's show because there's a Deconstructing Christians Part 2. John MacArthur, isn't that coming up at some point here, David? I have I have been watching it. I broke down. I, I had to watch <laughs> oh, it. Oh, no. Tell me it isn't it's true. Got, it's got, it's, look, it's coming. It's got I can't stuff. watch it. All right, it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Look for that one. So thank you, Gary, David. We will do this again, I'm sure. Take care and have a great day. Thank you. You too, thank you. Yeah.